0: The New Testament paints two prominent portraits of our Lord Jesus Christ. One is the portrait of a shepherd. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The other portrait is that of a servant. Jesus said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, or to be a servant. Unquestionably, Jesus Christ was the ultimate example of what it means to be a shepherd, And what it means to be a servant. It should not surprise us, therefore, that we discover that when we discover that Christ has determined that the two basic major roles that are to be modeled in the local church, in the positions he has instituted in the church, are these two roles, that of shepherd and that of servant. And this is clearly seen in the guidelines for church leadership that are given to us in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3. And I would ask you to open your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 3 this morning. We're going to be focused there uh, on uh, several verses. If you're using one of the Bibles that you'll find there uh, provided for you, you should find this passage on page 1410. Um, the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here, uh, gives to young Pastor Timothy uh, guidelines for leadership in the local church. We need to remember that Jesus Christ, the head of the church, has not left it up to us to come up with a plan for the leadership structure of the church. Jesus did not simply go back to heaven and then leave it to us to figure out how is this supposed to function? How is the church supposed to be structured? Uh, in fact, you'll notice here in First Timothy chapter 3, notice in verses 14 and 15 the reason that this letter was written by the Apostle Paul. He tells us in verse 14 and 15, I am writing these things to you, that was originally to Pastor Timothy, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, I write, now listen, so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of god which is the church of the living god the pillar and support of the truth in other words first timothy is a book on church order that is the main theme of the book of first timothy how is a local church supposed to function well as i say it's not left up to us to come up with the answer I believe that Christ has given us a very basic form or a template for leadership in the local church. And the passage of primary reference on that topic in the Bible is First Timothy chapter 3. It is a key chapter on this issue. It is astounding to me how many churches structure their leadership and choose their leadership without any reference whatsoever to what God's Word has to say on these critical issues. I have seen church after church they do not even refer to this passage of the Word of God when it comes to how should they structure their leadership how should they choose their leadership what are the qualifications for leadership they just totally ignore what God has to say. It is amazing Because I believe if we claim that Jesus Christ is our savior and Lord, then we should be concerned about giving careful heed to what his word tells us about order in the local church. If it's important to the Lord, should it not be important to us? I think so. In fact, I believe it's important every now and then to to remind ourselves periodically what our articles of faith state about what we believe about the Bible, because it's easy to forget. This is this is what it says in the articles of faith of the Bible Fellowship Church. Quote, the Holy Scriptures, both the Old and New Testaments, are the inspired, infallible word of God, a divine revelation. The original writings of which were verbally inspired by the Holy Spirit. They are the supreme and final authority of faith and conduct. Do you believe that? That the Bible is the inspired word of God. It is the final authority on the area of faith and conduct. Faith, what I believe, this is the final authority. And conduct, how I behave, this is the final authority. What I, what my practices are, both as a church, what we believe and what we practice, and as individual Christians, the final authority is the Bible. Today, there tends to be the idea that, well, I feel this way about that. Well, I feel this way about that, or you feel this way about that. Well, that's that's fine. You can have your feelings, but the final authority is not your feelings or my feelings. The final authority is what does God say in His Word. And so, here in First Timothy chapter three, Paul begins detailing. Some, he begins by detailing some 15 character qualities that are to mark the office of overseer, elder, or pastor. As Pastor Boone pointed out, they are the same office, same same thing, overseer, elder, pastor. You can use any one of those terms. Uh, the, the Bible interchanges them. But one thing is very clear. God's primary concern for spiritual leaders is their character. Not their personality, not their prestige. The concern God has for leaders in the church is their character. Because without character, nothing else really matters. And so, Pastor Boone has gone through this passage, but you'll notice in chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, it says, It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires. And the main responsibility, as we have seen, of an overseer or pastor or elder is to shepherd God's flock in the local church. That's their primary responsibility. When the Apostle Paul was meeting with the Ephesian elders for the last time in Acts chapter 20, he said this to them, to those elders, Be on guard for yourselves. In other words, look out for your own spiritual walk and for all the flock among whom the Holy Spirit has appointed you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. That is the responsibility of elders to shepherd the flock. The Apostle Peter points out the same priority in 1 Peter 5. Listen to what he says. I exhort the elders among you, shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. So the role of a pastor or elder is to be that of a shepherd, guarding, guiding, feeding the flock of God. They serve as under shepherds to the chief shepherd who is the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Peter says this, when the chief shepherd appears, he says, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. So the the elders in a local church are under shepherds to the one who is the chief shepherd and they answer to him and someday will give an account. Very serious responsibility to have and to know that someday. An elder, pastor, overseer will stand before the chief shepherd and give account for how they shepherded the flock. But now, in verse 8 of chapter 3, Paul turns his attention to a second role in the church. It is the role of a deacon. And that's our focus this morning. Look at verse 8 of chapter 3. Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double tongued or addicted to much wine or fund of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let there also first be let them also first be tested, and then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. The English word deacon is a transliteration of the Greek word diakonos. Sounds very similar, right? It just transliterated it. In English, deacon, it literally means humble servant, one who serves. That's the meaning of the word. It is in the role of the deacon that we see the role of Christ as a servant image most fully. Many people view servants as those who plod through life unnoticed, accomplishing only the unimportant. A life of service is often viewed as lacking significance and dignity. Our Lord, however does not share this low concept of servanthood we will see this more clearly as we examine what the scripture here has to say about deacons in the church of Jesus Christ and the first thing I want you to notice with me about deacons is the role of deacons what is the role of deacons where did this idea come from anyhow of deacons well the diaconate Or the role of deacons finds its its origin in the early days of the New Testament church, way back at the beginning of the church. If you turn back in your Bible to uh, the book of Acts, chapter 6, is where we find the origin of the role of deacon. Uh, Acts chapter 6, turn back there for a moment with me. And uh, this is early on in the history of the church. And, uh, there is a conflict that arises. Churches don't have conflicts. We all know that. Uh, but anyhow, they, they had a conflict in the early church. It didn't take long for that to happen. And, uh, if you look with me at Acts chapter 6, I want to read the first few verses of that chapter. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing, the church was growing in number, uh, a complaint arose. Imagine that. Somebody complaining in the church. I have never heard of that. Um, But, I must have lived on another planet, if that would be true. But there is a complaint that uh, comes up, that the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. The church looked after the widows, and there was some feeling that they were being overlooked. And it says in verse 2, the 12, that is the apostles... Summoned of the congregation of the disciples and said, it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Uh, but select from among you, uh, uh, brethren, seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we, we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Um, the apostles, you see, point out that they can't fulfill their shepherding function and at the same time get personally involved in food service ministry they said we can't do both and the issue was not that serving food to widows was unimportant they're not saying that Uh, but they could not do one thing without sacrificing the other they said we can't shepherd the flock if we're going to at the same time have to wait on tables uh, which is an important aspect so they agreed upon a solution it tells us in verse three they said to the congregation select seven men And notice the qualifications for these men. Men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom. High qualifications for these men, high standards. And it would be the duty of these men to serve the congregation by feeding the needy widows and making sure that their needs were met. All right? Now, it's interesting that some years later, when the Apostle Paul writes to the Philippian church, in fact, if you, if you can flip in your Bible quickly to the book of Philippians, if you can find it back there. Uh, if you can't just listen to me, read the first verse. This is some years later. This is written to a church in Philippi. And listen to what Paul says in the first verse to this church. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons. Did you get it? To the congregation at Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons. Paul identifies those two roles in that church. So it's clear that in those years in the early church, that these two roles uh, had been recognized in the church. Very, very clear. So that's the origin of the role of deacon. That's That's where the idea comes from, all right? now the question is secondly what are the responsibilities of the deacons they already alluded somewhat to it what are the responsibilities of deacons well you know it's significant that actually there are no specifics given in scripture as to the precise responsibilities or duties of deacons it doesn't give us a precise list of the things that deacons are to do it's more a general principle of what they do and then the specifics are to be worked out in each local church But we do see a pattern uh, from the seven that were chosen in Acts chapter 6, that they were to make sure the widows were not being neglected in the distribution of the food. We see that pattern very clearly. And you know it's significant that in 1 Timothy chapter 3, if you go back to 1 Timothy now, it's significant that in 1 Timothy, just a couple of chapters later in chapter 5, that we find detailed instructions concerning the care of widows. Look at chapter 5, verse 9, just for a minute. Well, we won't, deal on, we won't dwell on this because later on we'll get to these verses. But notice it says, Let a widow be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man. And it goes on and gives some qualification. It, it spells out to the church very clearly the responsibility to taking care for the widows. So you see that in Acts chapter 6. You see that mentioned here in 1 Timothy chapter 5. I believe the major thrust of the ministry of deacons is expressed well in the title of a book that we use to help prepare men to serve as deacons. The title is The New Testament Deacon Minister of Mercy. Now you know where I got my sermon title. If you saw it in the bulletin, that is. So it wasn't, it wasn't original with me. But I believe that sums it up well. New Testament deacons are ministers of mercy. That is the major responsibility of deacons, all that's involved in that. The author of that book, Alexander Strocks, writes this The work of the deacons. The servant officers of the churches to oversee people's practical material needs. This necessitated the administration of church funds. Since the first Christians did not have buildings to maintain, the first deacons were preeminently people helpers and administrators of the church's charity. They were ministers of mercy. That is the primary responsibility of deacons. Unfortunately... <laughs> There is a tendency in churches for the deacons to become glorified property managers where they spend the majority of their time looking after buildings and grounds. I have seen that happen in churches, leaving little time to deal with the issues relating to the needs of peoples in the church that Shirley and I attended while we lived in Wheaton, Illinois, for 13 years. At one point in time, the church had bought several houses contiguous to their property in case they needed to expand. And so as a result, the deacons became property owners. They became landlords, and it consumed a great deal of their time just uh, looking after the property. And that's not the primary uh, responsibility of the deacons. Well, we can thank the Lord that we do not have that situation here at Cedar Crest. God has provided an outstanding maintenance staff which frees up the deacons to concentrate their efforts on being ministers, God's ministers of mercy. And uh, we have an outstanding maintenance staff. I sometimes call them the B team, Bobby, Bruce, and Brian. So hopefully you won't get stung by them. But uh, they're actually the A team, but they're the B team uh, with those names but 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 i have always i have always said fortunately our deacons can focus on the responsibility that god gives them primarily and not be tied up in in these other things you see the responsibilities of deacons was to carry out under the oversight of the elders the deacons assist the elders uh, they carry out the temporal affairs of the church so that the elders can give their attention to the ministry of the word, prayer, and spiritual oversight. That's what they said in Acts 6. They said, we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And again, I believe we can thank the Lord that because of the work that our deacons do here at Cedar Crest, the elders are able to regularly give focused time to prayer and the study of God's word and how it relates to various issues that we are facing. We can do that. Because the deacons carry out the responsibility that frees them up to do that, as you saw in Acts 6. So those who serve as deacons minister through a a role that is probably more Christ-like than any other. For in their serving and giving, they fulfill precisely what Jesus Christ said he came to do. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. But what are the characteristics that are required for becoming a deacon? What traits should characterize a, uh, a, a servant of God? Well, God didn't leave us in the dark on that matter either. Um, God's Word has much more to say. It's interesting. God's Word has much more to say about the requirements for being a deacon than it does about the responsibilities of the deacons because God's much more concerned about what we are than what we do. Because if we are not what God wants us to be, it doesn't really matter what we do. And so there are much more said about the requirements, and the requirements are what are dealt with primarily here in 1 Timothy chapter 3. So, there's still a lot for us in verses 8 through 13. And uh, I want us to zero in on them now. What, are, what, are the, what is God looking for uh, in a deacon, or one who would serve as a deacon? And even though the deacons are not given the authority of elders, they still must meet some rigid requirements. Notice in verse 8, deacons likewise, likewise, some versions say in the same way. In what way? That refers back to the first seven verses. Just as there were some high standards spelled out for someone who would serve as an elder, likewise for a deacon. It doesn't minimize the requirements for a deacon. Actually, the qualifications for the deacon are almost as stringent as for elders because of their public profile in the church and because of the servant nature of their work requires strong qualities of maturity and godliness. One author puts it this way, the standard for deacons is in no way inferior to that required of elders. Elders who lead and deacons who serve perform different functions, but the spiritual qualifications required for both are essentially identical. There is no drop off in spiritual quality and maturity from overseer to deacon. The only difference is that overseers are to direct the affairs of the church, 1 Timothy 5, 17, and must be able to teach, 1 Timothy 3, 2. That's the only difference. So the requirements that we see given in this chapter fall under three general categories. Their personal life, their spiritual life, and their family life. Now, you can't, you know, categorize everything, but in general it falls into that. Spiritual, of course, affects everything. But their personal life, their spiritual life, their family life. And it is important to, re- it is important to keep in mind as we examine these qualities that they are qualities that God really wants to see in each and every child of God. These are not just for deacons. These qualities are found in other parts of the New Testament God wants to see in all of our lives. So we can't say, well, that's good for the deacons, but it doesn't matter to me. Oh, yeah. These, all these qualities mentioned in chapter 3 are ones that God is looking for in the life of all of us. All right? So first four requirements that relate to their personal life. Let me go through them. First of all, deacons must be men of dignity. That means they walk around in great dignity. No. It doesn't mean that. Uh, It means they must be well-respected. They must be well-respected is what it means. In other words, their moral and spiritual character evokes esteem from others. People respect them because of their character. They are known and respected by the congregation. Being worthy of respect corresponds to what we saw in Acts chapter 6, remember? It said, pick out men of good reputation. Men of good reputation. Men who are respected by the congregation. So that's the first qualification. They must be well-respected to serve as a deacon. Second qualification, notice that he mentioned, not double-tongued. You just envision somebody with two tongues coming out of their mouth, practically, right? Not double-tongued. In other words, he should not be the kind of person that says one thing to one person and says another thing to another person. They're double-tongued. Depending on the situation, they say this. Depending on the situation, they say that. He must be honest. He must be sincere. In other words, a deacon's speech must be characterized by integrity, consistency, and absolute honesty. Absolute honesty is what it's saying. There should be no manipulative, insincere, or deceitful speech. That's true for any of us as believers. A deacon must be a man of his word. He must mean what he says. His yes must be yes. His no must be no. In other words, a phrase that we would use, his word should be as good as gold. You can depend on his word when what he says, you can depend on it. So that is an important requirement for a deacon. And then notice a deacon uh, must be men of dignity, not double tongued or addicted to much wine. He must not be addicted to much wine. This was mentioned in terms of elders. You remember Pastor Boone talked about it a couple of Sundays ago. And he pointed out uh, when he did that the Bible clearly condemns drunkenness and participation in drinking parties as sinful. If you recall uh, what he emphasized. The fact is that over and over the Bible warns of the dangers of wine and strong drink. Let me read a few verses for you isaiah five eleven woe to those who rise up early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them isaiah five twenty two woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink proverbs twenty one wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise now some years ago, Christianity Today magazine carried an article. In which they stated that the wine of Jesus' day, that comparing the wine of Jesus' day to today's brands is like comparing apples to oranges. The article noted that it was the biblical custom of the Jewish people to dilute the wine to two thirds water and one third wine. Anything stronger than this was considered strong drink. It noted in this article that it would take 26 glasses of New Testament wine to equal a single modern martini. I don't know a whole lot about martinis, but I guess they're pretty powerful. Hence, the beverages of today would all be biblically categorized as strong drink that would not have been encouraged, but rather frowned on. Now, I would encourage you, if you've never done any research on that issue, to research it. Now, with the Internet, it's very easy. You can find all kinds of articles to read as to what was it, what was the wine that they drank in the New Testament. And uh, this article proposes that it was not what we, today, have as alcoholic beverages. But be that as it may, I'm not about to get into a a, uh, uh, dispute on that. But I want this morning to briefly mention three reasons why I believe a spiritual leader should practice total abstinence from alcoholic drinks. This is my personal conviction, and I want to share it, and you can take it or leave it. But I I have some convictions as to why a spiritual leader should abstain from alcoholic drink. And I want to go through them very quickly this morning. The first reason is that abstinence serves as a pattern or an example to others. Pastor John MacArthur puts it pointedly when he writes these words. A man who is a drinker has no place in the ministry He is a poor example, will surely be the cause of serious sin and disaster in the lives of others who follow his example as drinkers, justifying their indulgence because of their leader. A leader must be a man whose associations are radically different from those of the world and whose example leads others to righteous conduct, not sin. It's significant that in the Old Testament, the priests were prohibited from drinking wine or strong drink while serving in the tent of God. Listen to this verse. You might want to write down the reference. Leviticus 10:9. The Lord spoke to Aaron, drink no wine or strong drink. You are your sons with you when you go into the tent of meeting. Lest you die, it shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. And part of the Nazarite vow was total abstinence. John the Baptist was a Nazarite. Total abstinence, these requirements were laid down in the Old Testament. One reason that I have practiced total abstinence during my 44 years in ministry, because I don't want anyone to get involved in alcohol because of the pattern or example of my life. In other words, suppose a young person were to come up to me and say, Pastor Felty, do you, do you use alcoholic uh, beverages? Do you drink alcohol? And I would have to reply, well, yes, I do, but I, I do it in moderation. And so they conclude, well, if Pastor Felty does it, this mustn't be a problem. And later on, they end up as, uh, as an alcoholic. I don't want that responsibility. I don't want that responsibility. I don't have to worry about that responsibility. I don't want that on my conscience. It's not worth it. By the way, fathers, God has called you to be the spiritual leader of your home. What pattern are you setting for your children in this area? Because they are watching you. I remember Shirley and I used to go to a restaurant in Illinois, one of our favorites, and we watch these young families come in there, and more often than not, they'd sit around the table with their hamburgers, with their kids eating, and the father would have a big glass, big, huge flask of beer. And many times the mother wouldn't. I want to run over and say, Don't do that. What are you saying to your children? It serves as a pattern. It's an example. The second reason is that abstinence serves as a protection. Pastor Boone mentioned the fact that some people have a disposition to become an alcoholic. And I went on the web this week and I read this statement. Abuse of alcohol and other drugs is caused by biological, psychological, and social factors. Research has shown that some people have a biological disposition to alcohol or drug drug addiction. I don't know if I do, and I don't plan to find out. While I was a student at Moody Bible Institute in the early 1960s, my practical Christian work ministry brought me face-to-face with the results of those who had been led astray and enslaved by alcohol. I worked in several rescue missions in Chicago. In fact, my first preaching assignment was at Pacific Garden Mission in Chicago where they worked with alcoholics. And I vividly recall talking to men face-to-face on skid row who had at one time been doctors, successful businessmen, who had lost it all, including their families, as a result of alcohol. The following statement appeared in Christianity Today magazine, quote, People must be informed that the use of alcohol is not unlike Russian roulette. You know what Russian roulette is, right? Putting a bullet in the chamber and spinning it. Every tenth person becomes automatically hooked. The only solution is total abstinence. Abstinence. The indisputable fact is this. I've never heard anyone dispute this. No one ever became an alcoholic who never took the first drink. It's never happened. It never will happen. But I can tell you this. There are a lot of people who wish they had never taken the first drink. They wish they had not. Why should I want to ingest into, into my body something that has the potential to enslave me and mock me and destroy what I hold dear? The third reason is that abstinence serves as a protest. A protest. Alcohol is the curse on our culture. It is a curse. It is ranked as the second greatest health problem in our country. There are about 15 million alcoholics, most prevalently among 18 to 29 year olds. About 70% use alcohol as a beverage. As a result, it contributes to 205,000 deaths a year. Uh, life expectancy has reduced to at least a decade. One half of all traffic fatalities are the result of abuse of alcohol directly connected to one half of homicides, one third of suicides. It caused businesses in our country about $19 billion a year. And now one of every 12 marriages is coming apart because of drinking. And what's one of the major problems on our college campuses? Drinking. of students attending four-year colleges drink alcohol at a binge level. And you can look up binge level on the Internet if you don't know what that is. Do you realize that 3 million teens suffer from full-blown alcoholism? And it is a major factor in the three leading causes of death for people ages 15 to 24. Car crashes, murders, and suicides. And what a tragedy that the major sponsors of televised sports events are beer companies. That is a major tragedy. It is probably the most deceptive and despicable advertising on television. Have you ever noticed how funny they are? They're funny. They make people laugh. They never show you the end result. I could have kicked the television screen in when they had the advertisements on with the frogs. Remember the frogs? Every kid knew that advertisement. Every kid knew it. They're smart. They know what they're doing. I want to stand in protest of this deception. One nationally known pastor put it this way, I choose to oppose the carnage of alcohol abuse by boycotting the product. If people can go on hunger strikes to make a political statement, boycott Nestle's products to make a statement about child nutrition and third world exploitation, if people can go without lettuce for the sake of solidarity with Southern California farmers, is it really so prudish or narrow to renounce a highway killer, a home destroyer, and a business wrecker? For these reasons and for others, I believe a spiritual leader should abstain. It's clear that Pastor Timothy was abstaining, because Paul had urged him in chapter 5, take, take, a, uh, take a little wine for your stomach's sake, for your ailment, take it for medicinal purpose. He had urged him to do that, because he was abstaining. In fact, for these three reasons, I would urge all believers to abstain from alcoholic beverage. It will serve as a pattern, it will serve as a protection, it will serve as a protest. And I would plead with teenagers and young people, to do as Paul said to young man to Timothy, flee youthful passions, pursue righteousness, faith, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from from a pure heart. Oh, you say, Pastor Glenn, you sure spent a lot of time on that, and I would say yes, and I did so intentionally because it is a big problem and it's a growing problem in the evangelical church of America. Requirement number four. Notice what he says. There in verse 8, they must not be fond of sordid gain, sordid gain, dishonest gain. In other words, deacons handle offerings typically to distribute financial aid to people in the church family, as we saw in Acts chapter 6. They could be tempted to steal uh, or use the funds in a dishonest way. Did you know that some of the most common crimes committed in the church are embezzlement and investment fraud? I could tell you story, stories, stories if I had time, about investment fraud, especially within the church. Uh, But deacons must be men of unquestionable integrity and honesty. A person who has a problem with greed, stealing, or making bad financial dealings isn't a good candidate to serve as a deacon. One of the most important ministries our Board of Deacons has is counseling people who are struggling with financial issues. They must, therefore, be men of financial integrity who know how to handle their own personal finances according to biblical principles. Consider the last three characteristics that we mentioned there. Just consider them for a moment. Not being controlled by an uncontrolled tongue, not being controlled by wine, not being controlled by money. Just think of the number of politicians and business people and religious leaders who have been caught in one of those three vices. Lying? Lying? Drunkenness and stealing funds. Do you ever hear anything about that in the news that involves any of those? Is the Bible relevant? Does God know what the issues are? I think he does. They are not men worthy of respect. They are not men under control, and they are not qualified to become deacons, the Bible says. Now, Paul moves on to give two requirements that would fall under, we would say, their spiritual life. Look at verse 9 with me. But they must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Or I like the New Living Translation. They must be committed to the mystery of the faith now revealed and must live with a clear conscience. Two things here. Two things. Holding to the mystery of faith means that they hold to the word of God. That's what it's saying. They hold to the word of God. The entire word of God. A deacon must hold firmly to the doctrines of the word of God. They must know the word of God. They must base their decisions on the word of God. I don't have time to uh, to do it, but if you go back to Acts chapter 6, one of the men chosen was Stephen. Stephen becomes the first martyr, delivers one of the greatest sermons ever delivered. He was one of the first deacons. He knew the word of God. And just because a man's a deacon doesn't mean that they can't teach the word of God either. He did. He may have been chosen to wait on tables, but he was a man who knew the Word of God. But notice, not only are deacons to know the Word of God, but they are to live the Word of God. That's what it means when it says, with a clear conscience. With a clear conscience. Holding fast means knowing the Word of God, and having a clear conscience means doing the Word of God. He must not profess one thing, practice another. No secret sins. It's critical that every Christian, not just deacons, have a clear conscience. Is your conscience clear this morning, my Christian friend? Is there anything hiding in your life that you would want not want others to know or be aware of? Apostle Paul said this on more than one occasion. I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. I want my conscience clear, he said. Alexander Strzok wrote these words. A Christian can't hold to the faith with a pure conscience and live in sexual immorality, pilfer money, hate a brother, divorce a spouse, or mix falsehood with the gospel. The the New Testament never allows people to separate life and doctrine. Never. Never. I say I believe this, then my behavior should, should show that I believe that. So, Paul lays down six requirements or qualifications for deacons in these two verses. And he's going to mention some others in verse 12 that relate to their family. God's concerned about the family life of anyone who's going to serve. And Pastor Boone will cover those next week. But notice verse 10. It says, These men must first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. In other words, Paul is emphasizing that uh, these requirements are to be taken seriously. They're not secondary, they're not optional. They have to be tested, he said. Check their lives according to the standard. A deacon must be a person of maturity and faith and character. It must have shown by his faithfulness he's qualified for official service. Notice the words he says there, these also. Let these also first be tested. That's referring back again to the elders. and indicates that lives of both the elders and deacons are to be continually evaluated by the church. They must be a beyond reproach, he says. Both elders and deacons, beyond reproach. That means to be blameless. It does not mean to be perfect, okay? It means to live a life above reproach. Nobody is perfect. Every believer is called to live a life that is above reproach. So, we have examined the God-established role, the God-established responsibilities, and the God-established requirements for deacons. God's word is very clear, I believe. But notice verse 13. Uh, Pastor Boone will be preaching on this, so I don't want to take away his thunder. But I can't resist verse 13 because it makes my fourth point. The reward of a deacon. Look at verse 13. Those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Or as the New Living Translation says, Those who do well as deacons will be rewarded with respect from others and have increased confidence in their faith in Christ Jesus. There is a reward, God says, for one who serves faithfully as a deacon. And I believe we can praise the Lord for the outstanding group of deacons that he has given to Cedar Crest. I thank the Lord for the men that he has raised up. And I believe they deserve our respect. They deserve our prayers. I'm going to ask the men who are here who are presently serving as deacons that they would quickly come up here on the platform. Uh, I know that some of them can't be in this service, but if you're here, come up quickly uh, to, to the platform. I'd like you to see who our deacons are and, uh, so that you can uh, pray for them. And uh, um, I think almost all of them are here, except one I know is in an airplane over the Atlantic right now. He just couldn't make it for some reason. He emailed me and said he didn't think he'd make it. That's Nelson Randolph. Uh, He is not uh, here this morning. But Nelson has been a deacon for a good number of years. Six. Okay. Well, what I'm going to do, all right, a couple more men coming here. Uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to just go down. I didn't give a warning about this, <clears throat> but uh, I'm just going to ask each one of them to give their name and tell about, about how long they've been serving as, as a deacon, okay? It doesn't have to be to the day, the hour, but, you know, approximately how long you've been serving as a deacon. So you would know who these men are. All right, your name and how long you've been serving. Dan Urie, 12 years. John Rapp, uh, five years. Scott Cabas, 13 years. Uh, Rick Widmeyer, a little over two years. Steve Clayce, about six months. (laughs) Sam Adams, about six months. Scott Gaiman, 12 years. Uh, Dave Shuey, seven years. I think it would be appropriate for us to show our appreciation to these men, okay? Thank you, men, and just stay here for a moment. I'm going to ask that we all stand, and I'm going to close us in prayer. And as we close, I also want to pray for our deacons and their ministry, very important ministry that they have uh, here. So let's, uh, let's look to the Lord in prayer as we close. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the Lord of the church and that you are the one who has established the role of a deacon in the local church a very important role in ministry a ministry of mercy showing the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ to those who are facing various needs and difficult circumstances and Father we thank you for each one of these men and thank you for their commitment to you and their desire to serve you in this capacity and Lord we as a church body want to pray for them we want to pray for your hand upon them pray that you will give them lord much wisdom discernment direction as they deal with many difficult issues uh, in trying to discern what needs are uh, what needs are legitimate what needs are not and so lord we pray for your blessing on them bless them we pray individually as men pray that you'll bless them as husbands as fathers And we pray, Lord, that they would be men uh, who honor and glorify you. Father, we pray that each one of us would be an instrument usable for your glory, that we would live our lives with a clean conscience, nothing hid from you. Of course, we can't hide from you and nothing hid from those around us. And so, Lord, we pray that you will use us as a church body for your purposes and for your glory for which you have put us here and we commit ourselves to you in the precious and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you.